Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw, host for today's episode and executive editor at Provoke Media. So it's May, and as many of you know, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And this is a topic that, of course, we cover all year at Provoke, but we are doing a few episodes um, focused on this topic this month um, to help build some additional awareness. So to kick that off, on today's call, we have Leslie Campisi, who has spent more than two decades in PR and marketing and also recently became a Mayo Clinic trained coach in order to help wellness become a bigger priority, um, looking primarily at the tech sector. Um, in fact, we did a Q&A with Leslie last May on this very topic, which I will actually link to in the show notes because there's a lot of good information there that we probably won't be able to get to to revisit today. So I would recommend everybody um, read that. So welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and uh, be talking to you about this topic. Yes, yes. And so Leslie, and as I mentioned, you have had a very long career in PR and marketing. Do you want to, um, do you want to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a kind of bring them up to date in terms of what you've done and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of headline is um, started my career working in-house at startups as a marketer, moved to the tech PR agency side. Wow, I should really turn off my notification. No, it's 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 fine. You know, whether we have dogs or kids wandering in, whatever whatever happens. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, d- worked in uh, agency tech PR uh, for over a decade, um, and had the opportunity to go in house in VC. Was a CMO of an early stage uh, venture capital firm. Did that for a while. Realized I wanted to work with startups again more directly. And so these days I'm working as a fractional CMO for early stage companies and and COO, since those early jobs are all kind of fuzzy. (laughs) The startup, just the right people who can uh, advance the the ball. Um, But yeah, I would say my, I had a sort of personal journey into wellness. And I, at some point I thought I have to cross these streams because the people that I know that I worked with in tech PR on the agency side at startups for venture backed companies, I wanna use what I know and to help put mental health and wellness and well being on the agenda. And so, in doing so, I became a yoga instructor uh, for tech people and PR people, but also I was trained uh, and I'm now a board certified health and wellness coach. Uh, and I have private practice that's kind of, you know, off the side of my desk, but also I'm, I'm really interested in whatever I can do to have conversations around this topic with folks in the industry who have an opportunity to take that knowledge and to make really impactful decisions that can infect their employees. Uh, as well as to plant seeds with people working in this ecosystem so that they understand the connection between their mental health and well-being and their life and their performance and work and the steps that they can take 
um, to sort of self-assess and to bring things back into balance. So super important topic for me. Yes, yes. And for those of you um, that are listening, you know, uh, Leslie, like you mentioned, you're, you're both your personal and your professional journey. I, I recommend you all look at that Q&A because Leslie, uh, you kind of outline your, your journey. In fact, I think a lot of people will recognize some of the anecdotes that you gave in your journey. Um, you know, I think not having traveled for uh, over a year for most people, a lot of them are starting to realize what they were doing, right? Like the impact that had on their overall physical and um, mental wellness. Um, and I think you you talk about that in that Q&A. And so I, again, recommend everyone kind of read that for more for more details, because I think uh, many in our industry will recognize themselves in some of the um, stories that you tell. Thank you. So, yeah, is, the stressors today are quite different, but mm -hmm. the fear of eating the peanut M&Ms at the airport for <laughs> dinner every night is like, that is real. Yes, yes, yeah. And Right. And, you know, and as as companies kind of are, are trying to figure out what normal will look like moving forward, I from what and from the data that we're seeing, seeing, there's a lot of dread from employees that they don't want necessarily to go back to that life. Right. They don't want to go back to an hour and a half commute and then getting on airplanes all the time. And like you said, having to have the hotel mini bar peanut M&Ms for dinner. Um, and, you know, after a year of being able to to you know, kind of take push pause on all of that. So um, in fact, at Provoke, we are actually looking at that in some more detail. We just had our best agencies to work for um, survey and we're going through the data and we're actually finding some really interesting insights around kind of what employee expectations are moving forward. But for us, one of the things that I wanna ask you Leslie about is um, something that's been, that's in the news um, right now in the, in the tech sector and that is of course Basecamp. And just to give our um, listeners a, a quick summary in case you don't know, um, it was, I believe, last week that Basecamp CEO um, outlined sort of a new policy that banned, um, amongst other things, like societal and political discussions on any of their internal forums. And, and I think on Friday they offered, from what I understand, are some fairly generous um, severance packages to anyone who disagreed with that stance. And I understand it's about a third of the employees have taken it. And, and this is, you know, keeping in mind that Basecamp is not a very big company. I think they had like 57 employees or something like that. I should double check that actually. Um, so Leslie, like what is your hot take on what's going on at Basecamp? <laughs> well, I think it's important to have a hot take, but we also need a warm and a cold take on this too, mm -hmm. because this is the type of thing that when it happens, it, depending on where you, where you come down on it from the point of view, we need to keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I hope that it stays in the discourse. And if you haven't, uh, or if you want a refresher on this, I think Casey Newton, yeah. who spun out and who now has his own Substack called Substack called Platformer, mm -hmm. has really been you know leading the reporting around all of this. So I would, if you need to catch up, he's who I would read. Um, Another podcast we should talk about reporters and substacks and and what that means for PR people. Yes, Absolutely. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I I think what hurt me personally, kind of like the first cut on this, is that if you've worked in tech for as long as I have, 
you've always considered Basecamp as an outlier in a good way. You know, this is the company that put forth many different treatises on the future of work and what work and office culture and corporate life could look like. When I read Rework 15 years ago or, or whenever it was it came out, it was like a breath of fresh air. I thought, okay, you know, the they rightly identified, I think, that the nature of a lot of contemporary work is highly performative and that we have these rituals that we do that aren't necessarily in service of driving results. And, and they um, kind of pointed to these golden calves and said, why are, why are we worshiping these things? Like, let's, let's think about it a different way. So in terms of my personal trajectory, in my career, in my life, like they always made a big impression impression on me. They also chose not to take VC funding, even though they're a software company, and to have this kind of contrarian point of view to stay small, independent, and to run the business their way. And uh, boy, like, have they done that? <laughs> so, and th I think that's what hurts is that you know when Coinbase says sorry, th this is apolitical. If you could put aside how absurd that is, when you look at the actual business model of Coinbase as being inherently political, you think, okay, venture-backed company, growth mode, right? Like all of the stereotypes that you have around what those types of CEOs and companies are like, it kind of fit, fits into that stereotype. But for Basecamp to do to say the things that that Jason said in that memo was really frightening. Um, for I guess frightening maybe is a strong word. Maybe sort of shocking is a better word for those of us who have always had a, a soft spot for the company. But also for them to dig in their heels as the as the story over the last like four or five days just keeps getting worse there isn't a sense that they're gonna change their point of view. And I, I don't think it's too late. And I, I would like to hear from them again and to say, we, we heard you, we listened, we got it wrong. Mm. I, do, that's, and perhaps now we're talking about like, what's my actual point of view on this? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is my point of view that, you know, you don't get, a free pass for, for checking all the boxes of what I just described, being independent, contrarian, you know, getting all, for all the stuff that Basecamp gets right, it doesn't give them a free pass when they do something that isn't right. Um, and uh, to me, when you're, I don't know, yeah. I, I'll pause there because I, I think we'll go into the substance of, of what they shared as the conversation unfolds. Well, you know, I, I'm curious about, about two things then to, to dig into a little deeper. One is their, their overall reputation and what kind of hit do you think they will take there externally? And then, of course, internally, right? I mean, talent is something that is a hot commodity in, in tech, right? I mean, they already ran kind of, a, it seems like a pretty lean operation. And I mean, do you think that this will, like what kind of impact do you think this will have on both engaging existing employees, um, the ones that are left and, and recruiting and retaining others? And, you know, and I, you know, if you think about the, and, and, and I mean, I have to think that they w were strategic about this. And I mean, I don't know, did they look at who their ideal recruit is and did they kind of make that calculated assumption that maybe it wouldn't have an impact on being able 
to, you know, replace the third of the employees that they lost? I, I don't know, right? Like, um, but I would have to think that, that they, considering, you know, their their background and how like, they put out, I think the founders, have, like you said, put out like five books. I mean, this is something they think about and they think about it in great depth. So um, I have to think that this, all of this, they, they can't be surprised by the reaction. So anyway, I know that's a lot. So I wanted to get your take on the external um, reputation hit and what, what do you think will happen internally? Well, yeah, I mean, looking from the outside in, we can come up with a few different hypotheses. One is that this was a total shoot from the hip moment that maybe they didn't think through. Mm -hmm. uh, and they just thought, we're base camp, this is on brand for us. Like we say what we think and we're gonna like burn it down and start over and we've done it before and we'll do it again. Right, we're just like waving our base camp freak flag, right? Like this is this is who we are, what we do, um, without thinking through the implications. A more cynical point of view is that they knew exactly what they were doing, and this strategy, this PR strategy, is playing out exactly the way that they wanted it to, which is, you know, you can't fire people for being a bad culture fit, but you can certainly create the right conditions for those people to no longer want to work for you and to opt out of your system. So if they thought, you know, wow, wouldn't it, we would really love to just lay out all these people, lay off all these people or like transition them out of the business or whatever that looks like. This is certainly one strategy to be able to do that. Reputationally, what is the impact? I think this story is still playing out and will continue to play out. I mean, when you look at the company itself and the different products that are in market, you know, they've had products that they've sunset set before. There was an early kind of Slack competitor, right? That's no more. I think that's Campfire. I think there's um, still a loyal user base of Basecamp users. Hey, right? The email service. Like, I, I'm not a user of any of these software, so I can't, um, I can't speak for the users, but I do think that what we're seeing in general, like big picture, not just in this scenario, but overall, that people really are, people really do vote with their feet. And um, just as the employees are voting with their feet by leaving, you know, I think that they, I have seen people saying, I'm un, I can no longer be a Basecamp user. I can no longer be a Hey user, right? So, there's like kind of the reputational impact, but the, there's also the business impact. And obviously those things are related. Uh, and I think that's what we have to see play out. But like the longer that I've worked in marketing and PR, the, the, the more that I, I hate to admit, but that I realize that sometimes bad PR is a choice. To, to, to advance your business objective. And you may be willing to take the hit reputationally in order to, uh, for the business choice to play out the way that you want it to play out. You know, I, I also wonder like, you know, they like, they, so they took this, obviously this hard stance, right? But I mean, do you think that a, a softer, like, like, do you think this policy exists at a lot of other companies, maybe in a softer way, right? In terms of what conversations are encouraged and what are discouraged, the conversations that executives will participate in and the ones that they just shut down without having an explicit policy. And I asked this just thinking about looking at the best agencies to work for data this morning. And one of the questions is about diversity and how happy you are about the diversity at your organization. And 
white employees were generally like, yeah, everything's great. Like diversity is great. But then if we, when we broke it down by people of color, there was a lot of unhappiness. And it makes me you know, wonder how much the white employees or even white leaders are hearing that discontent or whether the people of color feel, empo feel empowered to do that. We saw something similar in gender lines um, around compensation. Um, men were generally really happy with their pay um, in our industry. There was women, like it, there was a graph and the women were sort of huddled in, all, in this corner across ethnicities. They were not, they did not feel like they were fairly compensated. And again, it's, it's I, like, so it's like these, this, this discontent, this friction is happening. And while companies may not explicitly say, you're not allowed to, you know, we, we're not gonna have political discussions. Um, I have a hard time believing that, um, that people still feel empowered to, to have those conversations, even without a base camp or Coinbase like edict. <laughs> Yeah, uh, whether there's a policy or not, certainly the culture dictates what, what is and isn't accessible. Um, look, I mean, we're in a moment of, of reckoning of power. And anyone who holds power is being challenged by people who have felt powerless and saying, I don't know, I don't agree with this, right? What about this? And when you look at this, if you believe the story as laid out in, in Platformer, um, it was an internal group of employees who had gotten together and with the permission or the buy-in of the founders to see what was, what was working, what wasn't working inside the business from a diversity point of view, take, a po take an assessment of it and figure out how to make it better. Uh, but the assessment itself got so hot that, you know, to use a British expression, it was like a total toy, throwing the toys out of the pram moment. Um, and, you know, and so the conversation gets shut down just at the point, the critical point where it's, it's the most important, where there's, you, you get to the heart of the matter. And on the other side of that is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to, how are we going to behave differently? And so I think a lot of businesses, you know, this is one example and kind of a teachable moment, right, for other businesses that have really doubled down on diversity. Even when you look at the people who quit Basecamp on my on my Twitter feed, it's, it's actually a quite diverse group from what I can tell. Um, you know, when you focus on hiring for diversity, there and that great like step one right you bring all of these women and people of color and differently abled people and lgbtq people into your organization your work doesn't end there they it's not like okay great thanks take a seat yeah. now you're here we don't have to do it no like you have to deal with what does it mean to bring all of this diversity in your organization it means you're going to create some friction and sometimes that friction is going to be between employees sometimes it's going to be between your employees and maybe your clients or employees and senior management so I guess coming into that with an understanding thinking, wow, like we've, we've taken this great step of hiring this diverse group. Now we need to expect to be challenged. And it's all about what do we do 
when we're challenged? How do we approach this? So like this idea that diversity is going to solve the problem and be like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and you're not gonna have to work at it. It's not gonna raise uncomfortable things. So like all of these people in power, whether you're running a tech company, running a team, running an agency, like you need, your baseline expectation needs to be, I'm gonna be challenged by the people that work for me. How am I gonna show up when that happens? Because that's the moment. And if you are a white person, if you are a white man, white woman, um, you know, if maybe you're none of those things, but maybe you are someone with power in an organization, like um, you need to be asking yourself what you would do differently. And that's kind of how I would use this base camp example. Like when someone says, hey, if you look at the ADL pyramid of hate, microaggressions is where it starts. Right. You don't rip that up and say, oh, sorry, like, how dare you? Right. <laughs> you say, oh shit, right. you're right, thank you. We need to shut this down, what can we do differently? So, you know, one of, some of the language that was used in, in Jason's memo, right, was about like how it saps energy and it takes you know people away from the focus of the company and 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 just it wasn't working for that them right and so you know i wonder so you look at our industry right the pr industry is this like constantly demanding stressful exhausting right like like career and um and, and i wonder like how could the other agency owners or team managers make space to have some of these conversations that are like they are exhausting like anyone who's ever had a real conversation about race especially across racial lines knows that it, it's it's an emotionally and mentally like taxing endeavor right and i think you know we had a podcast a few weeks ago um which we had a black woman in pr talk about you know how difficult it is to talk about race with white people who have not unpacked white supremacy and white privilege Right, you can kind of hit your, you can hit a wall. And she was talking about even her own experience as a leader at an agency and how, you know, people didn't like, you know, I think she was, she gave an example, I think of Ferguson, right? And that, you know, the handful of black employees at the agency came into her office in tears and just like not even knowing that they wanted to have that conversation, probably because of that reason. Like, did you, you know, like, what, what did, how, how would that go? And would that create more stress, right? So just kind of thinking this back to wellness, like how do you create the space, especially in a, in, a, in, a, in a profession that's already demanding, already stressful, how do you create the space to have these conversations in a way that doesn't just sort of add, especially the burden to people of color, right? Where, you know, you know they, they're having to carry with them all of this, like their white employees saying insensitive things or not getting it, you know? Whether you work in PR or whether you, no matter what your career is, we, we care not putting this back in the box, right? It's out. So this idea of we're going to go back to a time <laughs> where people uh, felt safe at work because no one talked about politics. First of all, did that time ever really exist? Second of all, like, not gonna happen. So I think that these are gonna be some failed experiments. Mm -hmm. Talking about PR and what it means to work in PR specifically, I have a really strong point of view on this. The PR industry, particularly on the agency side, sells 
time, people's time. It sells ideas that people come up with. If the people aren't taking care of themselves or if you aren't taking care of those people, you're never gonna get the best ideas. You're never gonna create the best campaign and you're never, you're, you know, I always thought when I was running an agency of the metaphor that I would use, it's, it's like a greenhouse. You have to keep it at exactly the right temperature in order for the plants inside to thrive, right? Maybe that sounds even a little paternalistic, but the point is regimes based on fear, Fear of getting laid off, fear of your client, you know, saying something mean about you to your boss, fear of failing to deliver. Those, re those regimes may deliver some results. They are not built to last. And so if, if that's how you feel working in PR, that you're living in fear of doing something wrong or getting laid off, you have to ask yourself, why does your corporate culture instill that fear in you? Because what the leadership of that organization should be doing is making you feel great so that you can come up with the best ideas and do all of the emotional labor that's required working in PR, which is all about convincing people <laughs> of ideas. Is, right? Having great ideas and, be, and being persuasive. So uh, I guess what is, if, if we believe that we, that those things are related, that then we have to create the right conditions for people to bring their whole selves to work because the person who feels stifled that they can't talk about their transition in the office because that's political, right. or they can't, right? You think that person is going to be able to give you the best of them right. uh, for, for their work, their team, their clients, your agency? No, the answer is no. So we have to, there has to be a, a recognition of that. I know people give a lot of lip service to the importance of talent, I know it can feel like all this like wellness checkbox stuff feels like the table stakes just keep getting higher and higher and higher and we have to add more benefits and more benefits. Um, right. All the stuff that we could be complaining about here, you know, finding new ways to do good things for your employees right. doesn't feel like it should be provocative. It feels like every business leader should be thinking about that at all times, particularly in PR. So, okay, so a few things that you mentioned that I wanted to, to <laughs> circle back on. One is, you know, this that, that idea that, you know, if you're transitioning, like at what point is that considered to be a political conversation? Because it's such a broad, I mean, in terms of communication, like saying political and um, I think they say in this, in the base camp example, they said societal issues. So like, if we're looking back to June, 2020, right? If we have a, a national movement happen around Black Lives Matter, is that something that at work, like, like where's the line? Are you not supposed to talk about that? What about, you know, on a day when our capital is, um, is attacked? And, you know, there are, there are these big inflection points, but then there are also these little issues. Like, I think someone had mentioned, like, you know, if there's not a paid parental leave policy, can you go to HR and say, hey, I think there should be one, or is that political, right? So it's really unclear, and who decides? I mean, I'm assuming 
that founders have an idea in their head of what that looks like. But when you when you paint such a broad when you paint with such a broad brush like that, like yeah, I mean, what kind of impact does that have on employees? And to your point about fear, right? Um, and, and I think what they said was that they're not going to like bounce anybody out the door that that kind of wanders astray, but they're going to kind of kind of nudge them back, right, to, to whatever they consider to be acceptable. Yeah, they've drawn some lines here, you know, whether those lines are clear or not, or how it'll play out, but like, we're not going to do it. It won't be company sponsored. You're going to have to have this conversation privately. And our founders on their private channels can talk about whatever they want, but it won't be part of the, right? I mean, these are things that all companies negotiate, but not all companies post the, uh, a snippy blog manifesto right. talking about why they did it, right? right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, like I like that, that transparency is, I can see that sort of being a plus because the worst thing is to get to a company, right? And to think that, to, you know, for, for them to pay all the, the right, the lip service in all the right ways and then to realize that nobody is actually empowered to have these conversations or, yeah. And so I, and so in some ways it's like, I don't know, is it better that a company just says it outright and, and acknowledges that rather than kind of gaslighting their employees on one hand saying, oh no, we believe in this, but then the employee tries totally. to have a conversation and it's just shut down. And this is where I think it comes back to PR and particularly PR agency land, because as you and I have talked about previously, PR agencies will chase whatever is hot, right? Whatever they think they're. And so it is very difficult sometimes when, to peel back the marketing that the PR agencies do for themselves to figure out what is actually going on here, right? Because it's PR. Your job is to say the right things, to position yourself the best way in the market. Is it? But is that true to how the business operates uh, and, and who the operators are? So that is what makes it, I think, more treacherous in some ways if you work at a PR agency versus if you work at a tech company that's like, hey, here's what we're about. Yeah. Um, it, it does make it easier for you. And as these employees have done, they've said, thank you very much. Appreciate it. I'm out. Right. And then beautiful is also you see everyone swooping in and saying, I want to hire you. Talk to this person. Hey, right. And there's this amplification happening. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I mean, yeah, we've talked about, right. I mean, yeah, there is a chameleon like nature to the PR industry. Like, I mean, I will take you, I do agency of the year meetings every year and an agency will have, I mean, the priorities shift based on often, like there are some agencies that have been consistent, but some agencies, like their, whatever their, 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 their landmark kind of proposition is, or their, their value proposition is each year kind of shifts. And that seems to be based on kind of whatever the market wind, whatever direction the market winds are blowing. Well, I also want to ask you what, you know, to your point about, you know, taking care of your employees, is yeah. what is the role of a company in in the wellness of their employees? Um, you know, from your perspective, I mean, what, what's what's a realistic bar that that your employee your employer can 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 meet, right? And then at what point does it shift to the employees? You know, their own kind of right responsibility, for lack of a better word, right? You know, a lot of the work that I do in wellness is really meant to be employee centric or, or, you know, one-to-one -one. Mm -hmm. uh, because 
it's that is what was what it's what is in your control mm-hmm. if you find yourself in a situation that feels out of whack, untenable, unbalanced, right? I want you to understand that there are things that you can do. However, the real conversation about wellness from a structural agency, right, business perspective is, it it really has to do with the operations of your business and how you are operating and what your financial model and your business model looks like. Because I don't think I will shock anyone if I state that in the PR agency world, the traditional business model is built in some ways on the exploitation of underpaid junior labor. It is something that we all know every time we fill out our hours spreadsheet, plotting out who's going to be on what account for the next month. Um, You know, I've been in that position too, where you have a holding company hanging over your head, dictating what margins you need to meet. uh, And you find a way to do that. And the way that you do that is by making the choice to put people through the grinder so that you meet your numbers. And, and there, I think, is a knowledge on the part of the PR agency worker that this is how it works and this is how the system works. And you work really hard and you sweat those long hours so that one day you can rise to the top of that pyramid and do the same thing to other people. Um, until we break this cycle, and come up with fundamentally new business models for what agency PR looks like. And there's always chatter about this, but for the new agencies that I'm aware of, they are taking an old playbook and reusing it. Maybe they're dialing down their margins, right? Um, Depending on how fast they want to grow, how, you know, what their ultimate goals are. Um, And they're putting a lot of wellness benefits and other benefits on top. But the number one thing that anyone who cares about the wellness of their workers can do if you're running a PR agency is look at your business model. Look at what you're asking your team to do and where your revenue and profit is coming from. And examine the connection between that and how your employees feel, how many of them burn out, what your churn looks like from, from an employee point of view. And it's not just about, you know, for what do employees care about? People care about lots of things, but they want to be paid fairly. They want to know what is expected of them clearly. And when they deliver on that, they want to be recognized for that. And they want to be spoken to as peers, not in a patronizing way, in a clear and transparent way, so that they understand how how they are contributing to the growth and success of the business, and hopefully how they are sharing in that. You know, I mean, again, bringing this back to best agencies to work for, um, the the data showed that the number one thing that that the highest performing agencies where they where they were different from the lower performing agencies was compensation was three questions about are they fairly compensated for the for their contribution is it competitive compensation and i 
you know, it, as much as the industry talks about happy hours and virtual pet zooms, I mean, really, I mean, according to the data, what people care about at the end of the day is, am I being paid well um, for what I'm for what I do? And again, like this is a separate conversation, but in our industry, you know, women and people of color don't actually feel like they're being compensated fairly. Um, and then, you know, and that was followed also by time which you know, was kind of this broad statement around flexibility, work-life balance, like being able to step away and not be constantly consumed by, by work or being able to take their time off um, and not feel guilty about it. So yeah, I mean, the, the, these quality of life you know, issues are what people care about, not necessarily you know, that let's we do a happy hour on Wednesdays on Zoom or we, you know, and, and it's interesting to me because sometimes when I talk to agency leaders, they really focus on those elements. They focus on the fact that they, you know, do like they have pet day on Zoom or something and how that like that's, but when you look at the data, what the employees care about is not these little social functions. They, they, they care about things that will actually tangibly increase their quality of life, money and time. <laughs> like, you know, the two things that they want more than anything else. Um, so I want to close on um, one question because I think one of the things that you mentioned that was really powerful in the Q&A before was the performative nature of in-office work. As we move to either people continuing to be on Zoom or this sort of hybrid model, what sort of are you kind of, what are sort of some of the flags around what, how performative work will look um, in either, you know, currently and also as we kind of transition? Yeah, that's really interesting because that, I guess we, that was early pandemic era when we were talking about what the implications of working with home from home would mean for people in the agency world where being the first at your desk, being the last at your desk, dressing smartly, right? Having that je ne sais quoi, right? Um, all of that, people build their careers on just those choices, right, in agency PR to differentiate themselves and to position themselves as, as ripe for, you know, promotion and advancement. Um, I, I think that all, all agency owners uh, have to look at this past 12-month period and say, um, did my business suffer? You know, did we fail to meet our goals? Um, certainly there was a period of time where PR was very quiet. Clients were tightening up their budgets, right? I'm sure there are lots of people who took a hit over the past 12 months. But in the time that we've been operating in this sort of remote as normal environment, were your teams doing good work? Were they delivering on the brief? Um, were, were you winning new business? Were you retaining employees? If you could say yes to most of these things, you, you kind of proven <laughs> that your agency can survive and thrive in this distributed environment. If it didn't, maybe you should ask yourself, you know, why weren't we set up for success? Because maybe it's my prejudice of having worked in tech PR, but there are many times in my agency career where I would work from home on a day where you have to write something or you have a bunch of call or or because you're traveling, you know, whatever. So if your agency suffered in this past 12 months, um, what does that say about how you were previously running it, that, that it needed to be in person? 
and that that in-person collaboration needed to happen in order for you to be successful. Is that, you know, is there a risk there that you've felt the downside of or that you need to shore up for future? So I don't know, Arthi, if I'm exactly answering your question, but what I would like to see, just as we were talking about how you can't put it back in the bottle in terms of asking people in 2021 not to talk about politics at work. Like, sorry, like it's, yeah. you can't put working in the office full-time right. back in the bottle either. And what I'm seeing among the tech companies that I'm working with and, and in, my, in my network is it's gonna be many different options. It's gonna be employee driven. Right, yeah. Uh, and employees deciding to opt in to fully remote, flex, fully in office in whatever that way that makes sense for them. Right. And I also think on the client side, uh, going back to the business models of agency PR, um, if your agency that you're paying tens of thousands of dollars to every month still has their gigantic office lease, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm frozen uh, in, in disbelief. Um, <laughs> but if that is still, if they're still paying for that, and yeah. I've never been to this office, but like the one with the famous fish koi pond in the lobby, yeah. like, do you now not understand how that gets tucked into your budget and why you're paying premium to work with this agency. So I think let's all take a hard look as people who are running agency P&Ls on how, what more you could do for your employees if you didn't have that giant real estate footprint right. hanging over your head. Yeah. How, how, how could you say goodbye to some of your shitty clients if you didn't have to pay that real estate or could you you know, offer other interesting services. I don't know, but right. I, I would like to think that it's where it's going to be a right. flexible future for the PR worker. I mean, and to your point about, you know, like these, these new agencies, I can also see a lot of new agencies forming with some of these ideas, right? That like, whoa, if I don't need real estate, what does that free me up to do? What kind of clients can I take on? And also what kind of capabilities could I focus on reinvesting in instead of, you know, these big shiny offices that people are going to want to hang out in all day. Um, you know, I mean, we're already seeing some agencies that are like, you know, just using like, you know, the, the whatever the, the co-working spaces are, right? So for when they're, when their employees want to be, you know, in person. So yeah, no, I, I actually think that for ones that are embracing this moment and not trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube, it's actually a really exciting time, right? Like you can experiment and, and do things that didn't seem possible two years ago, two or three years ago even. Um, I know we, we went for a while, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap it up even though there's like a zillion other things I could bring up. Um, well, thank you again, Leslie. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, I feel like our, our conversations are always provocative. We should record all of our conversations and post them somewhere because they're really good. <laughs> <laughs> we should, yeah. I, um, I just, I feel so passionately about the people who work in this industry. Right. And I'll always think of myself as a PR person. And I think you know, we, we have a responsibility to take care of each other, to take care for the people uh, of the people who work for us, and also to take care of our clients and maybe not in the way that you think, but in the way that they need. Yes. Okay. So that, that is a, that's a great kind of provocative comment that I'm going to leave everybody with. Taking care of your clients 
not necessarily in the way that you think, but in the way that they need. Um, and thank you again, Leslie. And of course, we will be back soon. We'll, we're going to have another conversation on mental health, um, which I'm recording later, maybe even this week. Um, and, and yeah, and of course, we'll be back soon with another Provoke podcast as well. You have been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.